Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy. But we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Approximately 5% of school-age children have a learning disability, and 13% of all public school students receive special education services. Another 15% are struggling due to an unidentified learning or attention issue. Struggles can look different in different children at different times of their childhood. Their struggles may be an issue with listening, concentrating, motivation, focus, or other underdeveloped executive functioning skills. Children with learning disabilities not only cope with the disability itself, but often misunderstanding of the disability and the child. People may think that their lack of concentration is due to laziness, for example. They may believe that their impulsivity is linked to rudeness or feelings that their needs and wants are more important than everybody else's. So it's not surprising that sometimes with this misunderstanding comes mislabeling. That child is rude. So-and-so is a lazy child. Mislabeling can be linked to behavioral problems and can cause a lot of anxiety in children as they struggle to either prove someone wrong or prove others right as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Children with learning disabilities also must cope with teachers, administrators, and parents jumping to an intervention that may not address the actual problem. So how do we talk to kids and help kids who are struggling with learning disabilities so that they can reach their potential and achieve their goals? For this, we turn to our guest, Dr. Karen Wilson. Dr. Karen Wilson is a clinical neuropsychologist, assistant clinical professor at the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Behavior at UCLA and the founder of ChildNexus.com, a digital platform that connects parents who have children or adults adolescents struggling with neurodevelopmental or social emotional issues with professionals who provide services. Dr. Wilson has shared her expertise in a broad range of media outlets, television, radio, podcast, print, and online. She is a sought-after speaker and has been invited to address a multitude of audiences, including parenting groups, educators, and professionals attending national conferences. Welcome, Dr. Karen Wilson, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. Before we leap into all of the information, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in helping children with learning and processing and social difficulties? Well, I think one of the things that gets me up in the morning is just the idea of being able to help kids achieve their full potential. Because I think, you know, in your intro, you talked about kids who struggle, who who may be thinking about themselves as lazy. And I just don't think there's any such thing as a lazy kids. I think all kids want to learn and are in, want to be engaged and enjoy that learning process. And for some kids, it's hard. And mm-hmm. so my, my role in helping kids get to that point where they're enjoying the learning process and decreasing the struggles is so important. Mm, I really appreciate that. And that's interesting what you were saying about kids feeling like they are lazy because I, I, as I was talking about in my intro, we may be labeling those kids and they may be seeing it as a self-fulfilling prophecy. But what I didn't say and what you just said is the internalization of that label and actually thinking of themselves as I am lazy, I am out of control, so that they wear that label as a robe and it winds up being part of everything that they do. Wouldn't you agree? I absolutely agree. And I think that really speaks to kind of the nonverbal cues they're picking up and 
picking up on in their environment mm-hmm. because you know you they see the eye rolls when it's reading time and they have to read aloud mm. and you know i've i've sat in on a number of classrooms where i've done behavior, um, observations of kids in the classroom and they have these these charts where they give kids um, these labels, either they're in red, yellow, or green, and the green is the best. And you mm. see the kids who are stuck on red, and you're announcing to the whole class that this child is not performing at the level that they should. Mm. So they're hearing l- loud and clear that they are not doing what it is that they're supposed to be doing at any given time. Mm. Wow. I, and that is heartbreaking. I, I know that we we have many children who are struggling these days with learning and processing and social difficulties. And as we were just talking about, sometimes adults will see these struggles and wind up rationalizing the difficulty through a lens of typical neurodevelopment. So you mentioned in the past, for example, that we might say that they'll grow out of it or they're lazy or the youngest, they're the youngest in the class. That's like, you know, how we rationalize it. And mm-hmm. you've said that in your work. And we're doing them a disservice when we do this, of course. So when we see that our child as a parent or a child in our class is struggling in some of these key ways, what would you say is the best thing to do to help the child both professionally and on a day-to-day basis as a parent or a teacher? Yes, I think that that is so important what you just said, because I think that is my soapbox is standing up and letting people know that you have to pay attention to the difficulties that children are experiencing and you have to validate their experience. So if a child is telling you, this is hard for me, You don't want to tell them and give them the message, if you just work harder, it will go away. You want to validate the struggles that they're experiencing. So as parents and teachers, what you want to do is obviously document your observations, have a conversation with each other, a parent and a teacher. If a child has two teachers, then have a conversation between the two teachers and validate, are you seeing the same thing in your classroom that I'm seeing in mine? The parents can then have a conversation with the soccer coach and say, you know, my child's teacher is saying that they're really struggling with paying attention. Are you seeing that on the soccer field? Mm -hmm. Because then it adds information. And once you have information, then you can go to the next step of just um, evaluating whether or not this is a significant struggle that's really starting to interfere with a child's ability to to reach their full potential and demonstrate what it is that they know. Mm. I feel for the child and I also feel for those who are working with the children and the parents of my children both have ADHD, they have, you know, other complications and and it can get really frustrating. And it's easy to wind up falling into that trap of of thinking to yourself as you're inevitably comparing this child to other children and thinking This child just, like, I just had this conversation with this child. Like, we already talked about the consequences of this behavior. We already talked about some skills that we can use. And here we are again. Like, it gets, it can get very frustrating. So it's easy to fall into that trap. What message do you have for the parents and teachers who are working with kids and are getting frustrated about repeating themselves over and over again and feeling like there's nothing that's changing? I think one of the messages is the fact that that a parent or a teacher's frustration is 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 something that you have to pay attention to, yes, but you also have to realize that it doesn't compare to the child's frustration. Mm. That you really have to be in tune to the child's frustration level. So if you are experiencing that frustration, you're probably mirroring and even um you're mirroring what it is that you're seeing in that child. Mm -hmm. And so you're picking up actually on the child's frustration. And that's a good time to really pause and say, if I'm experiencing this, this frustration because of behavior X, what is it that this child might be experiencing as well? Mm -hmm. Because what you might be picking up on is the child's frustration, the child's anxiety, the child's concern about the difficulties that he or she is experiencing. And understanding that those those kinds of messages may be coming out in unique ways. Like it's not always, you know, the gritting of the teeth, the looking away, you know, the actual demonstration of, 
that emotion that comes with frustration, but it can come around as silliness and looking distracted and putting your attention in other places, fidgeting, bothering the kid next to you. Wouldn't you agree? I absolutely agree. And what's what happens often is that those behaviors that you see mask the underlying difficulties. So a child, for example, who's really struggling with reading will may get up and go to the restroom mm -hmm. numerous times, particularly when they know that they're that's going to be their turn to read aloud and mm -hmm. it's going to cause them some embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Or the child who can't sit still and it's physically uncomfortable because of the motor restlessness, they have to get up and sharpen their pencil numerous times during the day. And that can, can, can disrupt the, the flow of the, the classroom. Mm -hmm. And of course, the teacher wants to get through the material and kids in the classroom are learning at different paces, but those behaviors can be a red flag and indicate some underlying struggles that need to be addressed. Mm. Uh, we had interviewed Dr. Mona Delahook, who I adore, and she talks a lot about what's underneath the, the iceberg, underneath the behaviors and looking at what's underneath. And I feel like you're echoing that from your point of view, which I think is extremely important. And it's not surprising that the teacher who is working with that child and seeing them consistently getting up after they've said, no, you know, do that before or do that after, you know, that they're starting to think that the child is being disruptive on purpose, that they're looking at them and saying they're being rude. They know what I have set out. They know what I have told them. And now they are choosing to get up to go to the bathroom during that time, even after we've established the rule. So you can see where that frustration comes in, but understanding and highlighting what you said, that they may be using it as a strategy for social survival. That's exactly it. And it gets conceptualized and interpreted as, as defiance. Mm -hmm. And it may not even be a behavior such as talking to a friend or getting up numerous times. It might be that they're just not starting the work that they're asked to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about a lot of kids who have struggles with executive functioning with writing and the teacher says, okay, I want you to write mm -hmm. about this topic. And they open their notebook and they stare at the blank page. Yes. All the other kids have started working mm -hmm. and they're still staring at that blank page. Mm -hmm. And the teacher comes by and says, you know, I thought I told you to get started. You know what you're supposed to do. But if you don't know that that child has all of these great ideas in her head, she doesn't know where to start. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know how to organize all this information. She doesn't know how to get that information onto the page. Then it can look like defiance. You couldn't have hit the nail more right on the head. I've actually experienced that perfectly just as a parent. My son and daughter have both said that same thing to me that they feel like when they're given a, an essay that they don't know where to start. My son had a, there was an art class and the art teacher said, draw uh, an, another world. Uh, you can draw anything, draw another world. And you know, the teacher drew like aliens or whatever. My son looked at the, he did not do a single thing on the paper, nothing. And he came home like really distraught about it. What was that guy talking about? What do you mean another world? Like what? What are you talking? I have no idea what you're talking. And I was thinking to myself, this is what was going on in his head during that time. But what does it look like when a child is sitting there with a blank piece of paper when everybody else is doing the work except for defiance or this is not this is not my jam or like, I don't really care what you have to say. It, you know, as a parent to hear the opposite side of it this incredible frustration of being like, I have no idea. And me as a neurotypical person going, well, you could have drawn what you think about on Mars. Like, what do you think of what an alien looks like? You could have drawn something deep in the ocean. My daughter's chiming in. You could have said done the, what you think would be in the center of the earth. Like she's <laughs> piling on because we're like, we see it. But this child, exactly that the executive functioning isn't quite there. And so he's not coming up with the ideas of where to start first. And nobody's sitting there prompting him like we would be if we knew this information. So Absolutely. what do you do in that situation? Let's say that my son is sitting there and he can't get started or the girl who in your situation that you mentioned 
is -hmm. sitting there with a blank piece of paper and they've been given the prompt of, you know, writing about something and, and they're not producing anything. Now, what does the teacher or the parent, if it's a homework assignment, the parent do? I think one of the things you want to do is you want to understand. So you want to understand why there are no words on the page. So, you know, first starting with, do you have any questions about what it is that you're supposed to do? Tell me what, and even asking the child to repeat the instructions. If they can repeat the instructions perfectly, they know exactly what they want, what they have to do, then there's something else going on. So then you find out, so what are you thinking about for this assignment? And I know you I noticed you haven't written any words on the page. Um, what are you thinking about right now? What are you thinking about writing for this assignment? And so you might get the child talking about what it is that they have to do, and then you might identify what the struggle is. They might say, I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have an idea about writing about Mars, but I can't decide whether or not I should draw the picture first or I should write down an outline first. And then you help by scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Well, those are great ideas. Let's put some of the, let's write some of those words down or let's just start with that sentence. So you help them start the process. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. you need to have that conversation to get the process started. Mm-hmm. So you're actually helping them activate those neurons in the frontal lobe that are responsible for task initiation, but you're giving them a little of assistance with that process. I like the idea of, of scaffolding and, you know, supporting the situation. We just interviewed Dr. Harold uh, Koplowitz, who uh, just wrote The Scaffold Effect and just and was just talking about this idea of being a support system for your child in these in these ways as they are able to then take it and go with it. I can imagine in that situation that we just mentioned that if you're prompting a child who may be more concrete or maybe more visual or you know maybe more sensory that you may have some different techniques to use with that child meaning like all right you know you're on Mars what do you see Mm-hmm. And then what do you feel? Like, what's the weather? What do you smell? What's around this person? Who's there? So that you're prompting some questions that get them to be more concrete. Because it can be really elusive when we're giving these prompts. And we think, you know, we know what we see. Our neurotypical person might know exactly what they see. But when we break it down into smaller pieces, it may be the very thing that helps the child to move forward. And I would imagine with like a sensory, more sensory type child, that if they have materials in front of them, they may be able to think about what, you know, is it fuzzy? Is it, is it hard? Is it spiky? What does that alien look like? Would that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. You want to provide as much support, multimodal support as you can. Mm -hmm. And it's really about engaging the child. So it might be, and I love the idea that you talked about that a child might have a concrete, you know, thought Mm -hmm. about the process. So if it's right about Mars, they might say, I've never been to Mars. I don't know anything about Mars. (laughs) So how can I write about something that I don't know anything about? And then you engage them. What do you think it might be like? Mm -hmm. You know, how might it be different than than here, mm-hmm. if you were to imagine what it could be. And and then you get them thinking about it in that way. So you've kind of, again, helped them with that, and with initiating that process. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then again, for some kids, they, there's a fear of making mistakes. So they don't want to write the wrong thing on that paper. So you might get another piece of scrap paper and say, well, let's not write it here. Let's just mm. get all your ideas out on this separate piece of paper. And then once we figure out what we're going to write about, then we can put it on in the booklet mm. or in, on the paper that you're going to turn in. That kind of takes away that fear of making mistakes. We have a bunch of people on on listening who also work with children in a in a physical way. You brought up the soccer coach. You've got you know people who are listening who work with kids after school and martial arts, gymnastics, swim, dance, cheer, and all the other sports. And I'm wondering, so if you, if there is a, a coach who's listening and they're not looking to get a child to write an essay, but they are Mm -hmm. wanting a child to do a certain play or they want them to move in a certain way, kick in a certain way, whatever it might be, and they're not getting it because of it feeling like 
they can't get it into their own body. They see their coach do it, but they don't, how am I, I'm not doing this correctly. And I, and so then they wind up just giving up, right? They just throw in the towel. Then again, it looks like defiance. So let's move it to like more of a physical realm. What, what would we do in that situation? I think, again, you have to meet the child where he is. And so, and, and we talked earlier about breaking like big tasks into smaller chunks. Mm. So it's not that you run up the field, then you pass the ball, then you run to the other side and you wait for someone to pass it to you and then you kick it in the net, right? It might just start with when the ball comes to you, kick it in the net. <laughs> so mm. can we start with that task? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a series of movements, a series, of, it might be too complex for a child. Right. And so you start with a smaller portion of a larger task and you help kids master that Mm. and you reinforce them for doing that. You talk about how great it is. You talk about the fact that they couldn't do it last week when you met for practice or when you met for, you know, the game and now you can, and then you slowly add on and you increase the complexity, but you do it slowly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we could make it even more concrete by saying, I want you to kick the ball into this cone that's in the net that's in the corner you know that you can make it as concrete as possible for those kids or um you're holding up an object and you say i want you to kick it this high try it now so that it's it's helping those kids to see the picture rather than it being more abstract which can be more challenging certainly for younger kids and kids who are having trouble with that executive function. Is that correct? That is correct. Mm -hmm. And some kids, when they have those difficulties with attention or with working memory, which is one of those executive functions, again, it's not in their control to not remember at the right time. Mm. And so we have to keep that in mind. And those kids may need reminders. And you also don't want to call that child out. You don't want to say, (laughs) When, you know, when the, the other kids are on the, on the field, say, Johnny, don't forget to pay attention. Ugh. You want to make it about everyone. Okay, now everybody pay attention. Right. Or you might even have like a, a signal, a, a, a flag or right. a, a hand movement that alerts Johnny to right. pay attention. But you don't want to call that child out. He's struggling. We love that. And and also parents, I love parents. I am a parent. I totally get this feeling. But um, I, my husband and I used to own a martial arts and fitness academy a million years ago. And we had many students there that, you know, they would be on the training floor and the parents would be watching and the child's focus would, you know, start to wander off. And the parent would actually call from the watching area and say, Johnny, pay attention. Now, not only does that embarrass the child, but it also takes their attention off. (laughs) Right. So, um, yeah, so we can be supportive as parents. And if they are looking at us, that we also have one of those cues that's silent that allows them to know to pay attention. Not that we should be waving our hands to get them to look at us so that we can give them that, that sign. But certainly that was some advice that I had given to the parents. Now, you had mentioned executive functioning. So just so that we're all in the same page, what is it in regular terms that we would all understand? And what specifically are examples of what we might do to strengthen executive functioning skills if our children seem like they are deficient in them or they are uh, developmentally delayed in some of those executive functioning skills? I'm sure. So executive functioning, it's really a term that describes a number of different things. And it really, if you kind of think of a big picture, it's a child's ability, an individual's ability to do what it takes to achieve goals. So it's goal-directed behaviors. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that are involved in achieving goals or accomplishing goals. So it includes things like, you know, we discussed starting a task. So beginning a task, just getting started, getting your brain ready to begin a new activity It also involves your ability to plan and organize and manage your time, prioritize, you know, hold information in your head while you're doing a task so so you're not forgetful. So it's all of those things that we need um, to be successful when we're completing 
tasks, particularly when they're when they're particularly complex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, if you're finding that your child is disorganized, their backpack has like you mm-hmm. know just stuff all over the place. Uh, your child doesn't know where their math book went. Um, there, they had their Fitbit, but now they don't, um, or whatever the, the, the thing is that they're attached to. What, what is it that we can do to assist them in the development of different executive functioning skills? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things we can do is model for our children um, executive functioning skills. Mm. And so it might be that at the end of the day, or, you know, at the end of the day, you help them organize your backpack. You say, I want to get things, let's get things ready for tomorrow. Let's make sure we have everything that we need. You might give some visual cues. You might have a checklist on the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. So the Chromebook is in there. Your math book is in there. You've got your pencil case. You've got your headphones if you need them. All of the things. Do you have everything in that book? Mm -hmm. And then once you do this over and over again, then you can back off and have them just go to the checklist and check things off. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the point where they don't need the checklist. They have it in their head and they're Mm -hmm. holding those items in working memory and they can put all the things in the backpack themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you put the backpack near the door Mm -hmm. because now they don't have to in the morning when as, as a, as in you as a parent and I'm a parent as well know that if you don't have all those things ready at at (laughs) the night before, the morning is chaos because then you're okay. Is the math book upstairs or you forgot this in the basement and you know, we still haven't eaten breakfast and don't forget your snack and you, you have to have a plan, but you have to model that organization for your child and then they can internalize it and execute it on their own. And it's easy for for parents, and I'm guilty of this at times myself, because of course it's quicker, easier, uh, less stressful if we do it for our child, but then they can't get the skill. So there is a need to kind of create the time to do this without feeling pressured. Would you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that you can again, help your child. I think mm-hmm. it's, you're not enabling. Right. Um, sometimes you just need to put it in yourself. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes you just do. <laughs> so, yeah, you just do, and that alleviates the stress. But then the next day, you might make sure you get up a little bit earlier so you can have that time to model it for your child. Mm-hmm. And again, when you when kids do go through this process over and over again, they learn it. Mm-hmm. And they're learning those executive functioning skills. And the goal is to have them be able to execute and utilize those skills on their own without your prompting. Mm-hmm, but they mm-hmm. need some support in the beginning in order to do that mm-hmm. because they're learning something new. And every time kids learn something new, and I love talking to kids about this process of learning, is that they're causing changes in their brains mm-hmm. and their brains are making connections. And then you reward them for doing it on their own. Mm-hmm. And that you know gives them you know that dopamine release and they feel good about it and they feel empowered and they want to do it again because it felt so good to have everything that they needed and they did it on their own mm, what kind of rewards would be appropriate in that moment I, I, just verbal rewards mm-hmm. just you know you got everything in your backpack on your own and i didn't even have to remind you mm-hmm. to put those things in there remember last week when you're having so much struggles with that and you're really frustrated because you forgot the math book that didn't happen this time. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud of you for that. Mm-hmm. You've been working really hard. Mm-hmm. Mm. So important. Now, your work shows that if a child has anxiety and a learning disorder, that the intervention for the learning disorder is not enough. I have learned that the hard mm-hmm. way. The anxiety also needs to be addressed here. So, first, how do we know if our child indeed has anxiety that actually needs to be addressed? It's not that they're just a little nervous about this or that or, you know, and, and, and if we do know that the child has anxiety as well as a learning disability, what are some of the next steps for us as parents in tandem with our child's educators or coaches to specifically help them to goal set and thrive? Yeah, I think that's a really important point that, that children can struggle with two or more things at the same time, Mm -hmm. and they can interact to make things more difficult. Mm -hmm. And anxiety is one of those things. So if you are struggling with learning and you also have anxiety, then that can exacerbate the difficulties that you're having with learning. Mm -hmm. And so you have to address the anxiety and the learning difficulty. Mm -hmm. And first, 
again, is understanding that there is a struggle with anxiety. And oftentimes that may come from a consultation with a professional because sometimes as parents, you don't know what should be expected. Is this normal? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not sure, then definitely seek a consultation with a professional to determine whether or not this is an, a case of anxiety that needs to be addressed by a professional, either mm-hmm. through psychotherapy. And you had Dr. Don Hubner mm-hmm. on your, on your yes. podcast talking about worry and, and how you know, there are evidence-based approaches to addressing anxiety. So there are things that we can do to address the anxiety, but you first have to know that it's there, mm. which is why identifying the reason why kids are struggling is so important. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't know, you're just guessing. Mm-hmm. And then you can't get the appropriate intervention for that child. Mm-hmm. So if you think it's anxiety, but it's really a reading struggle and you treat it like it's anxiety, then you're not addressing the underlying issue. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure that if you have any doubts and you're not sure that you're getting the professional guidance in terms of identifying what the issue is so that you can have a treatment plan, mm-hmm. an educational plan that addresses the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I could see and imagine, I mean, my head is just going to a looking at the child right now and seeing that if they have anxiety in the classroom and they again don't want to speak up or they're worried they're going to fail um, and they are uh, have a social anxiety in front of people that they're not going to perform as well as they could, but they also may not look like they're ever trying. And then you feel like, well, this is an effort issue. This is um, a a laziness issue. When actually, if it's anxiety and that's not treated, you can't even get to whatever else might be going on. Absolutely, and if we go back to that example of the child staring at the blank page, if the issue is not executive functioning, but it's really fear of making a mistake on that page mm-hmm. and you treat it like it's an executive functioning issue you're again you're you're not addressing the anxiety which is treatable mm-hmm. Right. And there are effective and evidence-based, again, treatments that address the anxiety, but you have to know what it is in order to help that child. I know that you've mentioned in your work that a child who's struggling with anxiety might wind up looking irritable or extremely tired. They may have concentration issues. They may have difficulty sleeping. So I kind of want to to jump into that let's talk about sleep because we know that's really important. We, we know that we feel better when we get enough sleep. We've heard that sleep is important, of course, I mean, our whole lives. And your work tends to highlight that as human beings, we spend approximately one third of our lives in the state of sleep. Um, Yet 70% of American kids and adults get insufficient sleep. I mean, that definitely happens in my house sometimes too. And when kids don't get enough sleep, I mean, we all know what happens here, right? Kids don't get enough sleep. We wind up with poor attention. We end up with behavioral issues, possible issues in school with academics. So first, how much sleep do our kids need? And if they are not getting it, and you know their focus and attention and behavior and attitude are suffering, suffering. what is our next move? I mean, are, are we talking melatonin here? What, what is it that we do in that situation? Um, that's such a good point. And I talk about sleep a great deal because, you know, one of the things you had, you'd asked, for, asked about is what can parents do to support their kids? Mm-hmm. And one of the, the things that they have control over is helping kids manage their sleep. Mm-hmm. And sleep is important for so many aspects of our lives, just like you said. And when we think about how it, what it looks like in kids, it looks very much like what it looks like for adults. If you think about when you are sleep deprived, when you stay up too late, you know, writing a report or working on um, responding to messages, you're irritable in the morning, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. poor self-regulation, you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's exactly what kids are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so... If we, you know, and we talked about anxiety, but emotional regulation is also an issue for a number of different kids where they have these big emotions and they can't manage them. And sleep is a big contributor to emotional regulation issues in kids. Mm -hmm. And so 
sometimes we don't make the connection between lack of sleep and and behaviors and difficulties that kids are experiencing. And for some kids, the attention issues that parent, that teachers are seeing in the classroom are not related to an ADHD mm. or an attention disorder. It's actually associated with sleep deprivation, mm. chronic sleep deprivation, which leads to difficulties with attention and problems with executive functioning. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we want to know is, are kids getting enough sleep? So you asked how much sleep should, should, should mm -hmm. kids get? It's between nine and 12 hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. That's how much they should be getting. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the younger kids need more sleep and the older kids um, don't need as much, but even teenagers need, you know, nine, 10 hours of sleep mm -hmm. a night. And so that's something to keep in mind because not only is it, is it important for our emotional regulation and our attention and our focus, but it's also necessary for the encoding of memories and for the clearing of the, the clearing the body of toxins mm -hmm. while we're sleeping. Mm -hmm. So all of sleep is important for our health, our overall health and our well-being. Right. And yeah. it also helps us with learning. And so establishing healthy sleep habits is is important. And again, it comes back to modeling those behaviors for your children and having you know, a, a sleep schedule at mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like when you had an infant, but you have a strict bedtime for sleep. You have a strict time when all the devices come off, when kids get off screens, you have a, 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 a routine where you might have some reading time yeah, before right. bed, you have a nice shower or a bath. And again, all this, this time after dinner, um, so you get the you give the brain a t some time to to settle down mm -hmm. to prepare for sleep and and so that's what you want to do and for and i can understand because this has been a very challenging year <laughs> there's been a lot going on mm -hmm. you know, kids are spending more time on screens and yes you know it, homes have been very chaotic and it's been hard to kind of keep to routines but it's very important mm -hmm. it's very important for the way the brain is going to develop because we know that, you know, particularly early on, we have an opportunity to shape the way a brain is going to develop and sleep is needed for that process. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that early on kids are getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. So if you're finding that you're doing these things, you know, your children are, uh, th there's no screens after dinner uh, and you, they're reading books before bed, but you still have a child who is, is not sleeping well. They just, they're just not getting to sleep before midnight or whatever, that they're just <laughs> up they're still they they'll they'd read and read and read or they you know play with something you know next to their bed or whatever it is until uh the cows come home what do you do with the child if you can't seem to get that child to sleep i think there are two things one you want to understand the reason why they're up because sometimes the book is so stimulating that yeah. they can't go to sleep my child so was up what so <laughs> reading the hunger games like she could not she could not put it down. She was right. like, I need to finish. And then she admitted the next morning, she was like, yeah, I was up until 2 a.m. I'm like, that is just crazy, you know, right. but it's true. If you, if you are in the middle of a book that occasionally you get to that point where you feel like you have to get to the end or you're just not going to be able to sleep anyway. Absolutely. And so there might be a, a set time to stop reading right. as well. Right. You may not want to have that child in their bed with their book with the light on mm -hmm. and leave it up to them to turn it off right. when you know when they're when they're finished reading the part of the book that they're supposed to read <laughs> right so you might again have to set limits around that as well right. for some kids the room's not dark enough and sure. you need you know d dark curtains in mm -hmm. the room um, when they're, you're putting them to bed mm -hmm. for some kids again we're back to the anxiety right. there's a lot of anxiety they're worried about the next day mm -hmm. and maybe they have a test or maybe they're going to have to read out loud, mm -hmm. or maybe they're going to—they feel like they're going to get in trouble for not paying attention because that's what happened today. Mm. And so it might be that you have to address the anxiety to help with sleep. Mm. But then it all comes back to understanding. You want to seek to understand. Mm. You know, I see your light. Your light is still on. You know, um, you know we're supposed to be going to bed. It's really important for you to get enough sleep, and then engage in the discussion about what it is. Well, I'm mm. really worried tomorrow because, you know, I had this this 
this altercation with this friend and I'm afraid mm. that people are going to be mad at me. And so you, again, you're engaging to understand and then you can help. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So, so let's imagine that we're sitting with our children right now. And I, I appreciate the scripting that you've just provided. Let's say you have them right in front of you and they do have a learning disability. How do we talk to our kids about the learning disability and their brains when you know that they've been struggling with executive functioning skills or transition or goal acquisition? And and what would you say if you were in that position right now and your children have been frustrated or misunderstood and it was time for some changes? Yes, I, I think again, it comes to validating their struggles. Mm because kids want to be seen and they want to be heard. And so if you've seen the struggle and the child has verbalized that this is hard for them, then you want to say, you know, I, I've seen you really work hard at reading and I know it's still hard for you. And so you want to validate what it is that they're experiencing. And then you want to have some kind of normalizing of the struggle. Do you know that a lot of kids have difficulty with reading mm. and you're really good at math and for some kids, math is hard for them. So you normalize the idea of struggles. And then you also put it in the context of things that they do very, very well. And so it's not because sometimes kids will generalize, oh, I'm terrible at oh, school. Yes. And so you want to say, you know, you're not terrible at school. In fact, your teacher told me X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And you came home with that math test and you did really well. Or you worked really hard on that science project. And it was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So you want to, again, normalize struggles and also let kids know that you see the work that they're putting into the mm -hmm. area that is mm -hmm. difficult for them. And then you're also highlighting things that they do very well. Mm -hmm. And by normalizing, by saying that, you know, a lot of kids struggle and kids struggle in different ways. Mm -hmm. And you might even say something that's difficult for you. Mm -hmm. You might say that, you know, when I was a kid, I really struggled with speaking up in class because mm -hmm. I was really shy. Mm -hmm. And I had to work at that in order to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so you say that. Um, and so you use examples in your own life or in, in a sibling's life or a cousin that can, again, help kids feel that they're not alone in that difficulty that they're experiencing. But then you also want to give hope. Mm -hmm. And you can say that, you know, I see you struggling with reading. I know it's been a challenge and I know you've been working hard. And, you know, I want to, I want you to feel better about reading and mm -hmm. I want it to not be such a struggle for you. So here's what we're going to do. There is this person who really is helpful for kids who, who have difficulties with reading. And I want us to work with this person to help you develop strategies for reading so it's not so hard for you. Mm, mm. And so you're you're normalizing the struggle, you're talking about their strengths, and then you're also giving them hope mm -hmm. by saying that we're going to work on this together and we're going to make this easier for you. And this is what it's going to look like. So it's not a scary thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and even by talking about the person who's going to be helpful and giving them that hope, you're basically saying there's somebody whose like entire career is devoted towards helping kids like you because there's a lot of you. It's not just you. This is their entire world is that they're helping kids with reading. And Absolutely. and so, you know, that must feel much better. If the situation is attention-based mm -hmm. and you're talking to that child and you know that they've been distracted by the dog, the food, the people, the noises, the mm -hmm. access to screens, what is it that we're saying to our child in that situation? Because I know that that's really a struggle for parents right now. They just want to rip the screen right out of their hands. What is the, what are the words that we would use in that situation? I think you can use similar words um, because their struggle is, is this, their struggle is there, but it's just in a different area. Mm. And there's, there's different words you use for a kid who has ADHD versus a kid who's struggling with attention who doesn't have a diagnosis. Mm. And so we want to be clear on the fact that, you know, if a child is, you know, struggling with attention, struggling with focus, there are a lot of distractions. Again, you can normalize those struggles given the situation that we're in. Mm -hmm. I get it. The dog is barking. Your sister's running in and out of the room. You know, I'm trying to make lunch in the background. Mm -hmm. And so there are lots of things going on. And I can see how that is 
hard to learn and hard to focus. So we are going to do some things. Again, there's hope. We're going to do some things. We're going to change some things in our home. We're going to help you better focus so that you can better learn. Mm -hmm. And and so again, you're giving hope, you're giving strategies, mm -hmm. you're going to say, we're, we're going to work on this together. And you might even say that I'm experiencing some of these distractions because I'm mm -hmm. working from home. And it's not like in my office where nobody is coming in, I'm having to do a number of different things. So we're going to work on this together. Mm -hmm. We're all going to find ways um, to better pay attention so that we can all get our work done mm -hmm. and do what we need to do to kind of get through this this period. I love that there's a, it feels like almost a step-by-step -step system that you're that you're highlighting here um, where you know you're you're empathizing with your child, you're giving them and you're normalizing things and you're you know saying that here are some strategies and then some hope and I love that that can be generalized to different struggles. Would you complete this sentence? The most important thing for parents to remember when parenting kids with learning disabilities is? I think the most important thing that they need to do is connect with their child so that they can understand the struggle that they're experiencing and then provide hope that support is available. Mm, yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it really says, I see you and you're not alone. There is hope and there is help. So I, I love that. Give us your top tip. What do you want people to come away with after listening to this podcast episode so that they feel empowered at home or in the schools or in their facilities where they're working with the kids? Yeah, I think one of the tips would be that when kids are struggling, there's there's some stigma about what that could be. And if a child has a diagnosis, there's stigma around that. Parents don't want to share the struggle. Mm. But again, once those people know what the struggle is, they can then work to alleviate the difficulties and help kids in that area, mm. whether that be socially or whether that be with learning. Mm. And so we want to make sure that we seek to understand the reason why a child is struggling so that we can get them the appropriate help. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of my number one tips is to, to really seek to understand the struggle and not rationalize it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to normalize that all kids struggle in different ways. And for some kids, it's going to impact them, you know, in a, in a more significant way mm -hmm. in terms of their daily lives. But realize that all kids struggle in different ways, that we want to normalize that for kids, particularly for kids who are experiencing some anxiety or some self-concept issues around the difficulties they're experiencing. And then for parents to also help kids understand in that same vein of normalizing struggles, that even kids and adults um, who are excelling in their fields still need coaches to help them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about Simone Biles, she has a coach who helps her. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you're talking about bringing in an attention coach or a reading coach, kids can understand mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. coaches can help. They may have a soccer coach. You don't get on the field without practicing and just become the greatest soccer player on earth. Mm -hmm. You need some guidance to mm -hmm. get there. Mm -hmm. So that's a way of normalizing the experience of getting a of intervention for a child. Mm. I love that. That really does help to put things in perspective. And anytime that we're bringing in celebrities and athletes and, and authors and people who kids admire and want to emulate, uh, that it says to them uh, that th this is all okay. And uh, everybody is all in the same boat, but for different reasons. I, I love to provide kids with stories of people that they know that may they may not realize the struggles that they've been through um, to get to where they're going. Because, you know, often we, we learn about a Simone Biles uh, without you know, and we, we know about the, the athlete now, but we don't know about any struggles that she may have had in the past. Or, you know, we hear about Michael Jordan, or we hear about Oprah Winfrey, but we don't understand what they, what it took to get there. You know, even when we talk about 
President Biden and his stutter. Any of these things can be yes. very helpful uh, for your child to learn about so that they realize that they have great potential that other people who have struggled in the same ways as them, certainly kids with ADHD and anxiety, mm -hmm. my goodness, there's countless celebrities and CEOs that <laughs> have struggled with those things. And it's so great to be able to bring that in. I really like that technique. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you and the work you're doing? Um, there are two places. They can go to childnexus.com where we post articles about, you know, different struggles that kids face and how to support them. We've got a number of different providers who provide services to kids from speech and language, educational therapy, psychological assessments, and, and parents and educators can connect with those professionals there for a consultation or for, for a more in-depth work. And then if they want, anyone wants to reach out to me directly, they can go to westlaneuro.com, which is my private practice Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Karen Wilson. I really appreciated the way that you described the executive functioning skills and how you talked about what the kids are going through, the struggles, how we can really shift the way that we look at things so that we can better help them and better give them hope for the future. So thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me too. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Go up onto Facebook. You can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And I will be creating memes, highlighting some of the great things that Dr. Wilson has said here today. And you can share them all around uh, social media with your friends. You can post them up on your mirror so that you remember these things. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about the outstanding solutions we talked about today and use them in their own homes, their own schools, their own gyms. I can't tell you how important these reviews are. It helps to highlight the podcast and get it out there and make it more visible to people. So I am just going to say I truly appreciate it in advance. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. We all go through that. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. Perhaps you heard something today, a strategy, a way of looking at things, and you went, oh goodness, I've completely messed that up. Don't worry, you can do it again. Tomorrow's another day. Tonight, this moment, any time is a good time to apologize and try again or just seek out the right help and move forward. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.